Welcome to the Inventory Nation podcast, a show designed to bring you the incredible voices and stories of veterinary professionals coast to coast, all while helping you to manage and control your inventory. I'm your host, Nicole Clausen, coach, advisor, and champion for veterinary teams and their inventory. Joining you live from the mountains of Montana, welcome to the show. Hello, welcome back to the Inventory Nation podcast. Several months ago, I was absolutely delighted for Joe and Barb from Cubex to join us on the podcast to chat about prescription monitoring programs. Since then, both Barb and I have had a number of questions about state requirements for prescription monitoring programs, also called PMP. So today, I'm so excited for Barb to join us again to dive a lot deeper into what prescription monitoring programs are, the different state requirements, and ways to be compliant. Barb was the inventory supervisor and Cubex administrator for a very large specialty practice in the Bay Area of California for six years. Now she enjoys helping people and practices utilize Cubex and all of its features to maximum capacity. Welcome back to the show, Barb. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I really, I love your show. I love listening to it. It's it's so great to be a guest again. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Of course. Yeah, I think since the episode aired about PMP and prescription monitoring programs, I don't know about you, but I've had so many people wonder about what are PMPs and, you know, like just so much questions and confusion about that. I really appreciate you coming back to dive deeper on that topic. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Barb, you've been a fantastic guest on the Inventory Nation podcast before, but for new listeners, why don't you share a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey in veterinary medicine? Sure, happy to. So many moons ago, when the Animal Planet first started that channel, <laughs> I was obsessed with all the shows, loved them all, loved all the veterinary shows, which led me to go to veterinary technician school. Um And so I got licensed in the state of California. I was obsessed with emergency and surgery, and I loved all the blood and the guts and the gore and the medicine, and I just absolutely loved it. And like you mentioned, I I was working for a practice in the Bay Area, a very large practice. I started as a surgical nurse and then moved into inventory and equipment management. And then we got Cubex. Uh, which is, for those of you that don't know, it's a point-of-use inventory system, essentially integrating hardware and software into the management of inventory. And uh, did that for quite a while, like you mentioned. And then about four years ago, I actually came to work for Cubex. And so now I help other people with their inventory, um, as it, specifically as it relates to electronic management. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so helpful. And I feel like more and more practices are using it and really kind of seeing the value in it. So I think that's fantastic. So kind of a side note, I know, so you mentioned that you were a surgical nurse, right? And then you Mm -hmm. kind of made the switch into inventory management. Mm -hmm. What was kind of like the catalyst there? And did you like the transition? Because I hear a lot of stories from people who are A, they don't really want to be on the floor anymore, and or they want to become full-time inventory managers. So what was that kind of like? Well, it was was definitely gradual, sort of a natural progression. 
mm-hmm. um, the person that had been managing inventory, and this was pre-Cubex, so this was the old clipboard days, you know, um, the person who was doing that for the surgery department actually went off to human nursing school, and I was asked to take it over. So I did that for a while, and then Cubex came a-knocking, and the the corporate entities, the owners of the practice were very interested in it. And so that sort of evolved into getting a small number of cabinets across the hospitals. We worked with that for a while. And then we ended up getting full QBAC systems in all of our hospitals. And that's when it started to transition more into a full-time job. Originally, it was just like, you know, many, many other inventory managers. I was wearing three or four different hats in the hospital. But eventually, I did transfer into um, inventory full-time. And for me, I love the details, the metrics, the you know, being able to challenge myself, can I bring my inventory down in a period, in a time frame, and that kind of thing. So, um, it was definitely just a a very organic transition, but I I really enjoyed it a lot. That's so cool. I love seeing people who you know don't really realize that inventory management is a thing, you know, or you know can be really a role in a practice, and then just seem totally fall in love with it and be like, this fits my personality perfectly. <laughs> so true. So true. Because I feel like I was that OCD. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's like a healthy outlet for it. Because um, I feel like I was in a very similar role. Like I think I thought that I wanted to be like very like focused on the medicine side of it. And then like as soon as I found inventory, and I was like, oh, this is my jam. Like this is <laughs> so. <laughs> um. So let's talk a little bit about controlled substances. So as probably most of the listeners know, there are federal DEA guidelines, you know, that most practices are familiar with, but above and beyond that, and often more strict than the federal guidelines are the state regulations. So what are some of the state regulations that often catch practices off guard? Probably the biggest one, and this is going to sound so funny, but the owner's date of birth. Honestly, when you ask somebody for their date of birth in that kind of a setting, it was like you were asking for their firstborn child, honestly. And it was it just, many of them refused. Some of them were like, well, let's just wait and see, you know, and, and it did become a little bit of a logistical nightmare to collect that information. Um, and then there's some other states that require specifically with PMP um, programs, they ask for things like a driver's license and or a secure uh, social security number. Um, some require the gender of the owner to be on the on the submissions and the data. So it just it, it's so state specific. But some of the information is just not typical information that you would see like on an intake form in a veterinary hospital. It's like why in the heck would they want to know this? And mm-hmm. unfortunately, it's because of the controlled substances. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm sure with the whole curbside and COVID situation, it's a lot harder to collect that information, you know, because, you know, if you're using like an online form for clients to fill out and they're like, I'm not filling out my driver's license. I'm not filling out my date of birth. I don't, they don't need to know this, you know, so there's probably a lot of, you know, the client education piece in there. And I think, um, one of the things that I notice for a lot of state-specific requirements that people don't realize is there can be different, like different states can have different controlled classes. You know, so like gabapentin is controlled in some states. New York, they have some weird things with their controlled substance classes. So I think I feel like for me personally, the biggest thing is just kind of 
knowing that there's also these DEA guidelines for, you know, federally, but then state, there's a lot more, uh, you know, specific. I'm going to totally butcher this <laughs> word. Yes, that one. <laughs> and you're right. <laughs> you know, and so I think it's, there's just so much that goes into it. And, you know, we were chatting earlier. I think sometimes some of this information really comes to the forefront when there's been a visit from the state board or, you know, there's been some kind of event that pushes them to, kind of have to learn this information, you know, and it's like drinking through a fire hose. So I think if we can, you know, help people to kind of, you know, recognize those guidelines a little bit sooner, it might be more helpful. So thank you for your helping with this. Yeah, <laughs> so the overwhelming majority of states, I think it's like, is it 50, hello, 49 out of 50 states that have prescription monitoring programs for humans, mm -hmm. but more states are requiring PMP for veterinary practices. So let's kind of start from the beginning. What are PMP programs? Yeah, so PMP stands for Prescription Monitoring Program, and, and sometimes it's referred to PDMP or the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, and it's it's just a, um, a state-specific regulation to help in the overall management of controlled substances in the United States, because if you think about it, when you're administering in the hospital, it's very easy to record from the time that drug is manufactured to the time that it actually goes inside of a living body, right? And mm -hmm. so you have that full tracking circle. But when you're dispensing controlled substances, when they when it leaves the building, you have no idea what where it went, who it went to, what the circumstances might be around it. And the vast majority of it is just fine. But then, of course, you do have the abuse factor potential. And so states have these programs, the PDMP programs, where they want to know when drugs are being dispensed and they want to know certain pieces of information, again, state-specific, and they want to be able to track that. And the main reason for that is the states that do these programs have state databases where practitioners in different fields can query this database if they have some sort of suspicion that something might be going on, something nefarious, somebody might be visiting multiple vet hospitals or multiple surgery centers or whatever the case may be. So they can query this information and see if there's an excessive amount of dispenses tied to a specific person. And this allows allows them to monitor that and potentially intervene if they're if they suspect something might be going on. And so again, it's um, every state has their own uh, information that they need to collect for all of the um, different patients. Some it's patient information, sometimes it's client information, but essentially it came about due to the, the opioid crisis and how it's just getting worse. And so it allows a little bit more control for those drugs that are actually leaving the building without being inside of a, a body. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, um, I, I'm so glad that they're kind of, you know, really putting this program into place because, you know, from a regulatory aspect inside of an any practice, it, you know, it's kind of a, a bummer, but, you know, from the actual 
you know, purpose and why behind it, I feel like it is a, you know, really helpful for not only veterinary practices to use, but human medicine to say, uh, hey, wait a second, you've got tramadol, you know, 42 times in the last 32, you know, days, like, you know, what's the scoop on this? So, right. So, what are some of the requirements for veterinarians? So like, what do people really have to do with this? The first thing is to definitely look into the state specific regulations. Um, I, I will provide a reference uh, that you can post for your, for your listeners. That's a great resource for each individual state. And you can go to the website of your particular state and look and see what's truly required. But some of the more common things is uh, like the owner's, Um, name, address, phone number, the patient's name. They want to know the drug, the uh, the strength of the drug, how much is going home, like the day supply. Those are the the really common things. And then you get into the more uncommon things like the date of birth, the gender, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I've noticed that is very, that is incredibly variable between state and state is um, not only the data that you need to know, but a lot of times I feel like they will ask, oh, you only need to, you know, submit it to PMP if you've, you know, prescribed over X number of days or X number of doses. And so there's just, it's kind of like this question of like, okay, what actually needs to be reported? What doesn't need to be reported? You know, so... I feel like that state specific. So anyone that's listening, um, I will post that resource about kind of that state database um, at vetlogic.co slash podcast. So just feel free to kind of check that out, check the state regulations um, and see if, you know, you have any questions there. There is also contact information to contact, you know, your state representative um, for that PMP program if you have further questions. So what are some of the regulations that you often see that are missed um, in regards to either controlled substances or these PMP programs? Probably the biggest one that I've been seeing recently are what we call zero reports. So not every state requires it. So not every state is required to have a PMP program and then one level down, not every state requires zero reports. And essentially what that means is that the state not only wants to know when the controlled substances are being dispensed, but they want to know when they're not being dispensed. So if you're a hospital and you're dispensing controlled substances, you have three or four doctors, and let's say on Monday, doctor number two doesn't work. Well, obviously that doctor's not going to be dispensing any controlled substances. So a zero report needs to be sent with the submissions to show that that doctor didn't have any dispenses for that day. And depending on if the reporting is required daily, some states require weekly. Some states actually require it in real time. So as soon as the drug walks out the door, they want the report to be submitted. Um, All of those logistics need to be worked into the the essential daily flow of the PMP reporting of the practice. Wow. So some, I did not realize that there are some states out there that require, um, you know, real time submissions for that. Yeah, they give you, depending on the state, they'll give you a, a certain lead time, lead time, meaning, you know, if the, when the drug leaves, it, it has to be submitted like by end of business or some sort of regulation like that. So it does become a little bit more challenging for the staff. 
<laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Oh, hey, I know you just like saw 13 gazillion patients, but can you please <laughs> submit all these things to be and fill out all this paperwork? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that kind of brings up another question. Now, I know that Cubex is a really great PMP program, but for practices that don't have Cubex and maybe can't use this PMP program, how do you recommend them kind of managing the workflow and um, you know, and, you know, that compliance aspect. I think there's a few really key things that people can put into place. The biggest one is to work with whoever's going to be in charge of submitting these records needs to work with their management team and get specific office time. So if it takes you four hours a week, then that person needs to be allowed to have four hours a week to be in a quiet space where he or she can sit down and put together all the data and do the submissions. What really gets them in trouble is, you know, every veterinary hospital is crazy busy right now. And it's mm -hmm. very difficult to find the bandwidth just to use the restroom or get a get a lunch break, let alone sit down and do the PMP submission. So it's really, really important to have that time set aside to, to maintain that compliance. I think that's probably the number one thing. Um, the other thing is to familiarize yourself with what the state requirements are. And then there's things you could do. Um, if you don't have QBEX and you don't have an, an automated ability to do the PMP, looking at the format that's required, what information is required, can you reach out to your practice management software team and see if maybe there's a custom report they can put together for you, or maybe they even have a report that they've created for other customers that would give you the most amount of information in a single report. And then if you have to fill in a few pieces of information, that's fine. But the more information you can have in one single place, the less time you're going to spend in the process overall. So getting almost like an SOP from start to finish, what is the process, making sure you have the time, making sure you know what information you have to pull, and how much of it can you pull from your practice management software to make the overall process a little bit easier. Yeah, I think that's so smart. And I think really when it comes to anything inventory or operations wise, we really need to have that dedicated time to focus on it and to work on it. And so, you know, advocating for yourself to have that dedicated uninterrupted time is so critical, you know, because it might be a bummer. Time is in very short supply. You're super short staffed, but to be out of compliance with the DEA and state boards is not something that we want to do. Right. <laughs> On that note, what are, um, you know, beyond so that uh, resource that we're going to post in the show notes, how can practices find resources and make sure they are compliant with the state PMP programs and the state DA guidelines before, you know, they kind of get a visit? Yeah, it's uh, really, it's going to be so state specific. Um, but the resource that I'm going to uh, provide is, it's called um, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program Training and Technical Assistance Center. So it's mm. a big, long acronym. But anyway, the nice thing about this particular website is that they have these state profiles. So you go to your state, you look at the profile, it has all the rules and regulations. But the nice thing is the very first page is all of the contact information. It's, it's the website, it's email addresses, it's the people and the phone numbers that are associated with that program for that state. 
great resources. Some states, you go to the website and it takes a long time to decipher everything from, you know, because there's some states have the human rules and then they have the veterinary rules. And sometimes they're identical and sometimes they're not. And so being able to decipher through that can be difficult. But some states actually have a whole section dedicated just to the veterinary PMP program for the state. So weeding through all of that information is probably... Um, the most important thing that you can do and make sure that you know what you're supposed to to submit. That's step one. Step two is then looking at what kind of format does each state um, require. So, of course, it's different as just like everything else. It's different from state to state what specific format they require. It's not going to be an easy thing like printing, you know, running a report out of your PIMS, exporting it into Excel, and then uploading it to the state. None of the states work that way. <laughs> That's just way too easy. So unfortunately, they do. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with the security of the information. You know, when you're submitting things electronically, you need to make sure that it's the highest security. And so they have these different formats. So understanding that format, educating yourself on how to get the information in there, and then also understanding what happens if any of the records are rejected for whatever reason. If there's uh, maybe there was a mistype and a birth date comes across as 2321 instead of, you know, 1921 or, or 1911 or whatever. <laughs> Something but, like that. Yeah. If those dates are in there incorrectly, the, the, um, record will get rejected. Now, in my case, what was happening is that when I would do my submissions in the state of California, I would get the email saying they received my submission. But if there was a record that was rejected, it would get sent to the DEA holder. And as you know, the doctors get lots of email. They're very, very busy. I didn't always get those forwarded to me. So I didn't always know when there was a rejected uh, record that I needed to uh, to fix and resubmit. So it's important to to have a nice workflow and know how that works with the state. Is it going to go to the DEA holder? If so, then there needs to be some sort of um, conversation on how that DEA holder or the group of DEA holders within the hospital, how you're going to be able to get that information so that you stay up on any um, correction of records and, and making sure that you're 100% compliant. Yeah, I, that is so smart. And I think having just that workflow and listing like who's responsible for what, you know, so if it's like, like you mentioned, if there is that rejection, like who gets it, what is that chain of, you know, what is that workflow essentially? Yeah. Um, so on that note, have you ever um, run into the situation where clients are very resistant to give over that information, you know, like their birthday or their driver's license number? How can practices make sure that they're getting all that information, you know, necessary, but also, you know, still having like a, you know, a good client experience, essentially? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things we we in the veterinary world want to avoid at all costs is having to call a client and say, um, can I have your driver's license number or, you know, whatever the case may be. You don't want to have to call them after the fact, right? They've left, they've moved on with their life, and now you're calling them asking for extra information. There's a few things that that you can do if they are not willing to give that information on intake. Um 
the way that I advise clients when they are not either number one, they don't want to keep that information in their practice management software. It's just something they don't want to do. Or number two, they have resistance from clients that don't want to give it on intake. What you can do is when the doctor orders up a controlled substance that's going to be sent home, you could put a clipboard in your pharmacy, right? With And for controlled substances, you could have an additional um, label uh, RX label printed, and that would go on a clipboard. And then as the nurse fills the prescription, they take the clipboard with all of the the owner's information on it into the room because, right, they're going to go over the instructions, how to give all of that. And that's when you have the conversation of, you know, this is a controlled substance, a substance a controlled substance. So we're going to need a couple of pieces of extra information from you because you're taking this home. I never had a problem with that because it was just a one-on-one thing. It's something that's being mm-hmm. submitted to the state. If they don't want to give that information, then you would um, need to have the conversation with the doctor. You know, maybe there's something else we can send home that's maybe not controlled if they actually don't want to provide that information. But that way it's just a for each individual dispense is when you're collecting that information. Yeah, that's so smart. I think that would make clients feel a lot more at ease, you know, when it's kind of like that one-on-one conversation, not necessarily, oh yeah, what's your, you know, first child's born name and your driver's license and your social security number on the intake form. I think it's probably helpful. And we need to prick your finger. We need a drop of blood. Right, right. (laughs) What's your zodiac sign? (laughs) Your star chart. (laughs) Feels like that sometimes. (laughs) I know. So So do you have any tips or recommendations for practices that are really trying to like juggle practicing medicine, complying with the federal DEA guidelines and their state requirements? Basically, how can we stay sane above all this? Honestly, I'm going to go back to the SOP idea. It's really important, especially anything related to controlled substances, you need to have a good SOP in place. And not only just for the sanity of the DEA holder, making sure that license is safe and keeping your staff safe and keeping the clients safe and um, making sure that you're 100% compliant. But if your inventory manager wants to take a, a vacation, God forbid, then, you know, who's going to do it? What's going to happen? Nine times out of 10, it means that everything is put on hold until that person comes back. And then they spend the first three days just playing catch up and all of that stuff. There needs Mm -hmm. to be that nice continuity of compliance, right? You need to make sure that everything is done the same way, regardless of who's doing it. And so I'm a huge advocate of SOPs. And I'll tell you, they're a pain in the rear to put together, honestly, because you have to put all the details in there. But once you have them, you can easily pass it on to the next person. Okay, Susie's going on vacation for two weeks, she gets to go to Tahiti. So now you're going to take this over. And it's that nice step by step knowing exactly what to do. It relieves a lot of the anxiety. And again, it keeps you within that compliance that's that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a lot of times when I mention, oh, you know, put together an SOP, people like want to throw the book at me. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but there, I feel like there is so much value in them just to know what the actual procedure is. You know, I talk about this, this idea of unintentional chaos, right? Our practices are chaotic as enough, mm-hmm. just on their own, right? Clients are crazy. It's curbside. Like, you know, dogs are barking. It's the clinic cat is like trying to get into a bag of food. It's just wild, right? Mm-hmm. Phones are ringing off the hook. So if we have these processes that we know that we have to do every single day, but they need to be done the same way, let's standardize them, make sure everyone knows exactly how to do that process. So if Susie wins the lottery, or maybe she wants to take a day off, or, you know, a multitude of other things, we don't have to be like, oh, how do we do this? Wait, who do we now to talk to? How, how do we, how do I, I don't know what I'm doing. Ah, you know, so there's not that kind of like chaos and internal panic, right? We can kind of be like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Here's the steps to do it. And I feel like it just takes a lot of pressure, um, you know, when you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, who's responsible for it and more. Yeah, absolutely. And Susie doesn't want to get a phone call on the beaches of Tahiti from their from her work. So it's really important. <laughs> yes. I know. It's kind of like as a um as somebody who helps practices with their inventory, I want to make sure that um, you know, inventory managers can have a day off without being texted ninety-two times on their day off. So that's yeah. my ultimate goal. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, is there anything else that you think would be helpful for practices to know about PMP or anything else that you'd like to share? Probably just so managing the QBEX PMP program for QBEX, I've come across quite a few people who actually didn't even know what PMP was. Um, and so starting from scratch in educating them on that, I, I think the number one thing is to really look at, take take the opportunity to look at what the state requirements are. If you don't have PMP reporting in your state, that's great. You know, breathe a sigh of relief for now because I'm sure it's coming at some point. Yes. But for those that do, it's really important to just educate yourself and make sure that you know everything that's required and then start taking those steps because anything related to the controlled substances, if you're doing something wrong and you get caught um, like DEA visit or something like that, they're not going to just throw the book at you. They, they always give you an opportunity to correct the wrongs. And so if you can prevent any of those wrongs in the first place, then that's going to put you way ahead of the game if you do get visited. Um, and, and just document everything. <laughs> Anything yes. related to controlled substances, just just document the heck out of it. <laughs> right, right. If you're wondering if you should document, you should probably document. Yeah, the question, the question, <laughs> the question or the answer to that is yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Every time for everything, all the time. I basically say, you know, from like the second it arrives to the second it leaves, really, it should just be like a total and complete record, you know, of any, basically any information that happens at any point in time, just all the yeah. information. <laughs> yeah, and if you have, if any of the listeners, if you have Cubex, but you do not have the PMP module add-on, I highly recommend looking into it. I have seen it and it just makes everything a breeze. So if you don't have Cubex though, highly, highly recommend creating some type of 
you know, like Barb mentioned, standard operating procedure, you know, that you know exactly what information you are trying to get out of it, know your state recommendations and your guidelines. Um, but if you do have Cubex, highly recommend checking out the PMP. It saves you so much time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Barb, thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy day to chat with us. I really appreciate it. I know it was very informative for me. And um, so thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I love being here. Well, thank you. And um, anyone listening, go ahead and go to vetlogic.co slash podcast to check out that link to the state guidelines and exactly what you need to do for PMP programs. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inventory Nation podcast and spending your time with me. I know your time is valuable and in short supply, so it truly is an honor. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or leave a review. Be sure to visit vetlogic.co slash podcast to access the show notes and discover additional links and resources. See you next time.